right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Sally here got an awesome interview uh, with Stuart Sink, two-time winner at the age of now 48. He was uh, 47 when he won twice so far already this year on the PGA Tour. Just talk a lot about mental golf, talk about the Open Championship, his close call at Southern Hills in 2001. The guy can tell some stories too, man. I, I really enjoyed this one, especially his insight into, into mental golf. We dove pretty deep on that, and I think you guys will find that uh, pretty interesting. No Laying Up is, of course, brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. So we talked about the film room uh, last week and how DJ Pie, we did an episode with DJ Pie where he removed all the flag sticks. You might think, you know, the Rangefinder sponsor wouldn't have been a big fan of, you know, putting out a video encouraging golfers to play to the center of the green. But in that video, you'll see that DJ uses his NX9 slope rangefinder all sorts of ways to measure, you know, he's getting creative on gunning, you know, mounds and you see his brain start to work, you know, on things that he's gunning, covering bunkers, all that stuff. The NX9 slope helps you do all of that. You can measure hazards to avoid and discover the places where it's safe to miss. Uh, and right now our listeners can add the NX9 slope to their golf bag for $20 off. Use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout and you receive $20 off the NX9 slope. It's got all the features, the premium features that golfers love in a rangefinder. Slope adjusted distances. It's got the magnet to go right on your cart. It's got six times magnification, crystal clear display. It's got the pulse vibration when you gun the flag or whatever you're trying to gun. Uh, it's awesome. It's it's the best rangefinder I've ever used. You can call them up if you have any customer service questions. They treat everyone as if you know they're your best friend. They're they're golfers. They're golf nuts. And it's the only rangefinder that comes with lifetime battery replacement. So again, add the NX9 slope to your golf bag. Go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code No Laying Up at checkout for twenty dollars off. Our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 Slope. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Here's Stuart Singh. So I was looking for a word for this. Is it safe to say what we're seeing out of you in 2020 and 2021? Is it a career renaissance? Is that a good uh, good description? I, I don't think so. I've heard that word this year from various places, but I think I'm back to playing the way that I feel like I should be playing and not like some kind of a fountain of youth. I, I've I just don't feel like I've gotten what I could out of my game for the last, like, I don't know, eight years or so until this year. Finally, it's been a little bit more like me, if that makes sense. It does. And I just I'm curious, you know, as I get I'd say maybe 10 years ago, I was a uh, not a very understanding sports fan when I was 24 years old. And as I get into my 30s, I'm married now. I don't have kids. I now have much more appreciation, though, for life and the things that are going on in, in people's lives, especially professional athletes' lives, and how hard it is to maintain a really, really solid professional golf career for decades and decades. Did life get in the way at all? I mean, how would you? Why would you describe that? You know, your career for the for a few years, you you say you weren't playing like yourself. I can't say life got in the way at all because if you go back and look at the best players in history. And let's just start with Jack Nicholas. He had a family from a very young age, growing kids, a full house, and all the responsibilities of being a designer and the number one player and the most popular player. And did it slow him down? Heck yeah. no, it didn't slow him down. And so you can't point to that. Now, okay, fair to say that Nicholas didn't exist in the social media world where the news cycle is just incredibly fast and it's more like a news spin cycle than, than a cycle. And you can get thrown out of that really quickly. But life is life. And if you put your emphasis in the right places, then some people, hey, some people operate best with that being their job. I don't think that's necessarily the best thing for everybody. But if you put everything in proper place in the priority list and you and you give a proper amount of respect to the family, the job, the hobbies, the downtime, the uptime, whatever you want to call it, then I don't see any reason why family or life should get in the way. So, um, so no, I think it was for me, I think I actually had a little bit of a hangover from winning the open championship. I think probably I felt a little satisfied, maybe 5% where I felt like, uh, I've earned a little bit of a break. And then, you know, you, you, you take a 5% rest and 
you get blown by and and my golf wasn't in great shape and score showed it. That's interesting. Did did the way you won the the 09 Open contribute to that at all? I mean, I, I'm curious and I was planning to get into this more later, but you know, there's it, I'm, I'm still amazed and I've been this guy in the past that, you know, still looks at the screen when you come on and say, "Damn you, Stuart Sink, you took it away from Tom Watson." And I'm sure you've dealt with that for a decade and I'm sure your perspective on it's very different than a lot of people's perspective on that, but is do you think that contributed to it at all in any way? No, not a bit. No. I mean, it, it didn't at all. It, it it felt like any other tournament when I was in it. Now, looking back, of course, and it, it's not completely true that it, it felt like any other tournament. It didn't feel like any other opponent when I was playing against Tom Watson. It felt like, and I recognized that, like, wow, what a historic moment this could be. But I also understood that, for me, it was a historic moment because I had a real good chance to win my first major. <laughs> and so um, it didn't matter if it was Watson or Tiger Woods at the time it, I was wanting to win and I was going to play my best no matter what. And, and yeah, I've heard that a lot. You know, I've heard I'm the Watson killer and I killed everybody's dreams and I, you know, killed the dog and all that stuff. But <laughs> most people say that in jest. And I know that there's some sincerity in it that they really did want Watson to win, but that's okay. That's sports. And, you know, if I played for the Yankees, I would understand that the Red Sox fan, fans wanted them to win. So I get it and it's fine, but never really any hard feelings. And certainly um, Watson's won his share. And I think he was generously happy for me, you know, um, to be my first major and to win the Open. He knows how much that meant to me and um, he wanted to win too, but it, it was just an awesome time. I definitely, I definitely do not think that playing against Watson contributed in any way to me having a little bit of a slide after that. It happens to a lot of players. Um, when they win their first major in that particular time in their careers, in their thirties, you know, I'd been playing on toiling away on the tour for a long time, having some success and the major eluded me for a long time. And then boom, it happened when I was 36 years old and it happens to players though. They, if you go back and look at a lot of players, they experience a little bit of a dip after that major in that time. Well, and the only thing I was going to say to close that out was I I found the reaction strange because it wasn't like you birdied the last four holes to steal it from him. You know, it was kind of, you know, he bogeyed the last hole and he had a chance to win and then the playoff was not that close. I, I, I never... I, I was I never really saw you as the Watson killer. Uh, more so, of anything, I think it was so frustrating that he didn't close it out himself. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I was exactly. I, I felt like I was just um, I, I out energy Tom Watson. Yeah, and you know, I understandably so. I mean, I played well through the finish line and in the playoff. I probably was playing my best at the very last moment of the playoff. So I could have gone eighteen more holes that day and maybe even gotten better. And I think Watson, the way he finished, I think indicated a little bit of fatigue and who wouldn't be? I mean, oh my gosh, there's a lot. It takes a lot out of you to be in contention and to have the spotlight on you like it was on him that week. And for him to make it that far was just unbelievably remarkable. And then uh, I sensed on the 18th hole that it was my time to go in there and wrestle that away from whoever it was going to be. And it happened to be Tom Watson. Well, well, back to the present day, you know, a lot's been made out of uh, some distance you found in in your uh, in your late forties here, and I want to I want to get into where you find that, how you find that, and how, if at all that that kind of distance can translate to amateurs. But what what would you say you owe your recent good play to? Because if I'm looking at the stats, it's really your approach play that kind of has returned to your peak, the peak parts of your career. Your your driving is getting back more towards neutral, uh, but it's not a it's not a dominant number out there. So what would you say it is that you, you owe your recent success to? It's a lot of things. Um, it's a lot of things this year. I, gosh, I mean, it goes back really to, I had an injury, the first real injury in my career where I missed playing time in 19, where I had a back problem and it was causing some issues. Um, had to investigate a lot of things. Um, first of all, what was the injury? What do I need to do to improve it, to uh, become more flexible in certain areas, stronger in certain areas? Do I need to change my focus and my exercise, my golf swing technique? In digging for those answers, I think I position myself to be able to make some changes in my swing in 2020 and then 2021 to increase distance and take advantage of I'm six foot four. I got a big potential for, for energy and, and width in my swing. And, and that injury helped me get into the kind of shape that I needed to be. Not that I'm, you know, I'm not right running marathons and it didn't drastically overhaul my fitness, but I did get stronger in key areas and get more flexible in key areas and start paying attention to areas that helped me make the little changes that I needed to make to pick up that extra five, six miles per hour ball speed and 20 yards of carry, which there's just no substitute for that in the golf, in the game of golf at the top level. You cannot substitute power. I don't think that age really had anything to do with it. I think I just, 
I got a little bit inefficient with my technique and my form and, and I rediscovered it if, you know, to use a kind of a cliched phrase, but I just rediscovered something that was already there. And I definitely think there's something that can be learned from the amateur golfer by the amateur golfer from the way I've been able to change some things this year. I just simply, I changed the delivery of the club to the ball. Like my attack angle went from negative to positive. I was able to take a little bit of loft off my driver, which it turned my strike to more of a direct blow instead of a slight glancing blow. You know, like a wedge doesn't go as far as a driver because you're hitting it with a lot more of a glancing blow, all that loft on the club. And I was able to get more of a direct transfer of energy onto the ball, which just it immediately translated into faster ball, higher launch, lower spin rate, which, I mean, those, that's the, <laughs> that's the recipe for, if you want to bake a cake and the cake tastes like more distance, that's the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause it, nowhere in there did you say anything about swinging harder, right? And I, I wasn't expecting you to either, but it also just sounds like it is just optimization more than it is a, a true physical transformation, right? Is because everything you're talking about there is very uh, track man intensive, right? These da- these numbers are telling you this; they need to be saying this, and you basically are tweaking until you get to that uh, ultimate optimization. Is that a fair way of describing it? Uh, it I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Honestly, you look at track man numbers, you look at what the ball's doing with your eyeball and and your distance and all that, you know, in actual real space and then you say well what does trackman suggest like how can i get more closer to optimized with the speed i have right now and as soon as you do that and you start gaining confidence because your accuracy comes along with this naturally too you're once you start seeing that ball take off faster higher and straighter then your club head speed naturally increases too because you got just more confidence and you just it's like you can't wait to send that ball on its way. That's interesting. Yeah, hadn't hadn't really thought of it that way because it, it it sounds like you know you talk a little bit about flexibility, but it's not it's not necessarily weightlifting either. But on the physical side of it, you know, is there anything else that's really contributing to the to the distance increase? Um, it is a little bit of weightlifting and it is a little bit of strength and uh, or stretching and flexibility. It's all of those things. It's balance. It's how to transfer your weight property and which muscles accept a weight shift on the way back and on the way through. How do you properly turn with your spine angle so that you keep a safe environment? You can rotate very safely and very dangerously. And I was rotating a little dangerously and causing a little stress on my lower back. You know, it's a lot of different things. But I, my trainer, I, I started working with Cornell Dreesen, a guy who's been working for a lot of players out here over the years. And he really helped open my eyes to the way the body works mechanically in the golf swing, uh, biomechanically in the golf swing, and what areas need to be stronger for speed and for stability of the club face and the swing plane, and also what areas need to be stronger and more flexible for safety and keeping inflammation down and letting the body absorb the pounding that it takes, swing after swing after swing uh, when you're practicing and get ready for major tournament golf. If you can't tell, I'm working on some speed stuff. So I'm, I'm, this is a fantastic notes uh, to be keeping keeping for all this. Um, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, you you've you have a technique going on, on short putts, which I think is jarring the first time anybody sees it. I want to know how that started and what the reaction has been like to to what you've been doing over short putts, and, and also what the limit is distance wise on when you'll kind of do the uh, the stutter into the ball. Well, I, I wish I could answer by saying like, oh yeah, I spent two weeks with a uh, a bear trainer up in Maine and he learned that this, uh, the bears react well by vibrating, you know, but you know what? I can't, the answer is it is like a stutter and I have no idea when it's coming and I wish it didn't happen, but it does. And instead of trying to like step on it and stop it from happening, I just like let it go and, uh, try not to let it be, you know, a bother. And it can be pretty startling. I'm sure I feel like I get frozen up sometimes over little short putts, but Hey, I don't care. It's just, it's not, a, it's nothing intentional. Well, it, but the more, when I see it, I'm like, you know what? Everyone, before they go shoot a free throw, no one does it from a totally standstill motion, right? You spin the ball a couple of times, you get into like an athletic flow and I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, why do, why do we just get amazingly still over, uh, you know, short putts, long putts, medium putts or golf shots in general? It kind of just looks like. It, I, I guess I kind of thought it was more of an intentional thing than an unintentional thing of, you know, something you were consciously doing to get your muscles working, uh, you know, to get your brain out of the way, maybe on shorter putts. <laughs> no, it's nothing intentional. I think it's uh-huh. more just a, I think it's probably the subconscious 
wanting that little bit of attention release, kind of like a waggle, you know, you know, yeah. it's an involuntary waggle that happens a little bit. And if it was a big problem, I would, you know, have certainly like addressed it. And I'd be more concerned about it, but I don't see it as a real big problem. It's kind of just part of my routine that shows up here and there and it's not really distracting, but it's just a little subconscious sub, nah, what's the word, a subconscious and an involuntary little, uh, you know, tension releaser that happens in my short putts. And it, it, it almost never happens outside about four feet. Just always a little short putts. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Pinehurst. You, there's a lot of talk around the U.S. Open, you know, out Torrey Pines about a golf course that was accessible to a lot of people. Pinehurst, an anchor site of the U.S. Open, is one of the few golf courses on the U.S. Open Rota that you can sign up and go play. Of course, Donald Ross's fame, number two. It's my favorite golf course in the United States. We will be heading there this fall. If you're looking to plan a golf trip, look no further than Pinehurst.com. On top of number two, they they have so many things to offer. You've heard about, of course, the new number four course renovated by Gil Hance. It's like Pinehurst too, but just a lot more friendly. It's not going to punch you nearly as hard in the face. It's the perfect compliment. It's not a substitute. It compliments it. It's It's got the same terrain. It's connected to it, and it's a great one-two punch. One a little easier. One is, listen, number two is going to beat you up a little bit. Then you have the nine-hole, the cradle course designed by Gil Hans and Jim Wagner, 789 yards, just a tiny little perfect playground of golf. It's like a skate park. This will do the giant putting green, the Pinehurst Brewing Company, the newly renovated Manor Inn, the Carolina Hotel. The Pinehurst offerings have never been bigger and better, and we highly recommend that you check them out and plan your next golf trip there. Pinehurst.com. Let's get back to Stewart Sink. I find that you know, some of the things you said after Heritage, uh, in, especially kind of in relation to to what you're talking about there on, on the putting and whatnot, but uh, about the mental side of golf. And I, and I think a lot of people, when they hear about the mental side of golf, think it just means, you know, hey, be positive, most important shots, the next one, blah, blah, blah. But especially at your level, it can be a lot more extensive than that. And you have a career that you've learned a lot of mental stuff. And it sounded like even at that point, you are not necessarily trying new things, but almost having kind of some enlightenment when it came to the mental side of golf. How would you describe your mental journey in the game of golf and how that has contributed to some late career success? I'd say it started when I, I found myself dreading going to the course when I was probably about two years into my career on the tour. And I won pretty early. I had a really good college career. I got my card almost right away one in my rookie season. So I had experienced only success as an adult. What I found was that I had just created these expectations in my mind and uh, I had sort of imaged what a golfer is supposed to look like, say a golfer that's ranked in the top 40 in the world and playing on the world's biggest stage and a PGA Tour winner, for instance. I felt like uh, I was assaulting myself when I would not live up to that. For instance, like a golf ball out of bounds, a three putt, you know, a left a ball in the bunker, anything like that, that just happens to everybody. The number one player in the world does this stuff, but I was not forgiving myself for it. And I found myself like dreading it going to the golf course. And uh, what am I going to do if I miss the first, you know, five footer or, or if I hit it OB on number two, I was just not looking forward to playing golf and I didn't know why. And so I kind of like, uh, I reverse engineered the process with help, with help. I, I sought out a couple of sports psychologists and that didn't really go very far for me. I went outside of the realm of like the sports psychology world and, and went into more of like, uh, like trying to dig a little deeper and find out who I was as a person and what was going on. And that's what led me to understand what these expectations were doing. And I, when I first heard about this from a guy I used to talk to a long time ago named Preston Waddington down in Florida. I felt like it was just a huge burden lifted off my shoulders. Like, uh, oh my gosh, it's exactly what I've been feeling like. And that explains it. And I, I felt like it was okay when I, I wasn't giving myself the okay before. And so um, that was how I kind of started the journey. And to me, it was two things. It was number one, very effective as far as like a, a, an approach to the game and recognizing these feelings and these thoughts that came. And so I could deal with them a lot better and more effectively. And I played better. Number two, it opened up this real interesting world to me. Like, wow, this, you know, how you were raised and the things you experienced as a kid. And when your mind was impressionable, your self-esteem, how you feel about yourself in certain situations, all that stuff was really interesting to me and started kind of digging more into it. And so uh, that kind of led me on that journey that is really still going on. I still find that interesting and, 
Um, I'm always trying, I've always been a why person. I want to know why I want to, you know, my coach tells me you need to take your club more outside. I want to know why I'm not just going to do it until I I'm invested. And, and that's, uh, that's been the way I've approached this too. You know, I'm, when I feel a certain way over a putt or a shot, you know, coming down the stretch in a tournament, why do I feel this way? I want to investigate why and uncover the reason so that I'm familiar with it next time it happens. I don't know how to ask this exactly in terms of what do you understand about the power of visualization or, or how does visualization affect you? And that's, that's a mental thing that I think uh, I feel like I've, I've, I'm starting to scratch the surface on learning. And I'm, I'm curious as to if you have any insight on that. Well, only, only what I've learned from other people. I mean, this is, none of this comes from Stuart Sink, believe me. I just I read a little bit. I talk a little bit. I absorb. I listen to podcasts or whatever. And, and I just kind of put together these, these things in my mind. And so, um, first of all, I'm not really big on visualization. That I, I don't necessarily do a lot of it. However, I do understand that the mind, when you, let's say you imagine something, let's say I imagine that I um, run across the street and there's traffic and I feel the exhilaration of the cars whizzing by and I barely miss it and get to the other side, right? If I imagine that, then when I stand there on the street corner and I'm about to run, my mind doesn't understand the difference between having really done it and imagined it. It creates like a template in your mind that's what we call experience. And so you can gain experience through visualization because you can kind of fool your mind in, into thinking you've been there before. There was an instance where, um, I can't remember what school, I think it was the softball World Series, college World Series. And a girl, one of the girls on the team had um, not a standout record or batting average or anything, but she pledged every day to imagine herself doing interviews as if she had driven in the, the World Series winning run every day of the year of the season, I guess. And she did these interviews in her mind and she played it like she had a reporter. She answered questions. She talked about what it felt like. She said how it prepared. And lo and behold, she drives in the winning run in the World Series. And this is recent. And so the power of visualization, that, that's it in an encapsulated picture right there. It's real, but, and, and you know what? You actually got me thinking. I think I needed to do more at visualization. <laughs> <laughs> you can add me to the list of mental coaches you've seen. But, yeah, there you go. But it, it's, I think at every level, a golfer can say, when I've got it going good, I can visualize. Like, you know, you don't even think it's more instinct. It's right side of your brain. It's, I see the target. I hit the ball there. I know it's going there. What I, I find that part of the game easy, right? When you're in the flow, what I find difficult is channeling mental lessons I've learned when something is off, whatever, whatever it could be. My focus is off one day. My swing is off one day. And like trying to, you know, while usually your left side takes over at a certain point and you're trying to tell your body what to do, yet you need to be trusting your right side, et cetera. Have you learned anything about channeling visualization and, and mental, you know, you're letting your mind take over when things aren't going great? Yeah. Like what we were talking about a second ago is more like mental, uh, imagery or visualization as far as a way to prepare. And what you're talking about is like more in a way to operate. And so, um, definitely like, let's say you have, um, a ball that's on tight grass and you got a chip about 25 yards and you need to carry it over the edge of a bunker. And it's just a pretty narrow landing area. Like you, to hit it perfect, you know, you got to land it sort of on this little spot. That's about three foot circle, right? Otherwise you're either going to be short or you're just going to roll over the back and down a hill. You can probably imagine the shot. Do you focus on like the speed in your arms and the club and how fast you want the club head to be when it catches the ball? Or do you want to focus on where the ball is going to stop rolling? And so the, the end point of the shot is going to sort of like a free throw shooter. I don't think they're thinking about the arm motion. I think they're just locked in on the basket and the target and their rhythm. But do you want to focus on the end point or where the ball lands or how the swing feels? There's just a lot of different mechanical things in golf that are going to that you could choose to focus on. And I'm sure there's golfers that do this very successfully that focus on all these different possibilities. But that that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like, what part do you want to focus on? And if if you if one doesn't work very well, like let's say you lay the sod over one, what do you focus on next? And th that part of golf, I find, I find really fascinating too, is where you're focused, where are you going to put your energy? If you got, if you got 10 units of energy, how are you going to spend those units on this, on every shot? You know, and that, that to me is crucial. It's crucial. And if it's not going well, if, it, if you're hitting your drives to the right, or if you're 
you know, catching your irons thin or, I mean, this, this happens to all of us, every single one of us, it happens. We don't come out there and hit the ball the same way every day. Then that needs to be part of your planning before the round, before your tournament, before your year, whatever, how are you going to handle those moments? And what are you going to do? What's, what's going to be your check down? What's going to be the next check down the next target? If the first one's not working and that's just part of being ready to play and ready to compete because we're just not the same every day. Yeah, I think I'm I'm both enlightened and more confused as, as, from when we started the, the conversation. Right, I've got me a lot to think about there. But what, what what do these phrases mean to you? These are phrases you've you've used: mountaintop of trust or mountaintop of peace. And yeah. also, you said I've spent a lot of of time and money on trying to be solid in my beliefs about what is really happening on the course and where my trust is where my peace and joy come from. I'm wondering if you could share that with the listeners. Sure. Um, well, the, the first part, mountaintop, um, that's something that comes directly from my coach that I work with on my short game and putting, James Siegman. We work very hard on making the process the goal and controlling what we can control and letting everything else just go. You know, the, once you make impact with the ball and it rolls across the green or it flies across the edge of the green on the chip or whatever, it's gone and you can't do anything else about it. So, um, I try to define what I control, what I can't control very clearly. When once that part's all been done, that's when James likes to say, I want you to show me what the mountaintop of trust would look like right here. Um, I'm like, if I'm practicing, show me the mountaintop of peace. What does that look like? And there's interchangeable. They're the same thing, but the mountaintop just means like the absolute pinnacle of as much trust as the maximum amount of trust you want to put on only the things you can control. And to us, that means, I want to hit my checkpoints and my routine perfectly so that at the end of my putt, I can be satisfied and peaceful with that was a great routine. And then the, re- the results, it's not that the results don't matter. They do matter, but they don't even exist. If you're really after that process and you're really trying to create the best process, then the results don't exist. And they will be what they are. And you're probably going to make 50% of your eight footers. The goal in professional golf, because it's a long, long, long journey is to make 51% of your eight footers, not hundred percent. You're not going to ever make a hundred. You want to make a little bit better than you did yesterday. And you want to just increase those percentages just by a tiny little bit, because if you try to do too much, you're going to fail. And so, so that's pretty, that's, that's just a simple explanation of the mountaintop. That's just the phrase that James Siegman likes to use when he wants to see what it looks like to do the absolute best process with the least focus, the least units of energy focused on results. The second part of your question was about the, where I get peace and joy in my life. And that's an entirely different thing because faith is just such an incredible, huge part of my whole existence. You know, I am a follower of Christ and I, my relationship with Christ provides me every bit of the peace and joy I need so that it just makes golf matter a little bit less and it makes it a little bit more fun. And it takes the the mountaintops of success down a little bit because I don't believe that it, it, that I'm entirely in charge and it takes the failure, the depths of failure a little bit off too, because I feel like I've already got something that's a, you know, a complete assurance and I get that through faith. And so, um, so that, that's, I want to focus on that all the time. It's tantalizing to want to play great and shoot 64 every day and make all those 10 footers and, and hit every fairway. But it's not the answer when you're trying to play good golf. Not for me anyway. Well, taking all these, all this mental stuff we've talked about, and um, it contributes greatly, I would imagine, to success to the point where you are have a five shot lead going into the final round of a tour event. That seems like a, like the worst kind of golf, worst kind of lead to try to go into a final round of, especially on a tight little golf course like Hilton Head. How, what, how nerve wracking is it? How do you, how do you approach a round of golf knowing? You know, 18 pars is probably going to win this thing, yet you know there's probably going to be some up and downs in it. What was the final round of the Heritage like? Well, really, um, Friday night and Saturday night kind of felt the same because I had a big, I think it was a five or four shot lead after Friday too. So um, going into the weekend, I knew obviously where I stood and there was a lot on the line, a long way to go and almost anything can happen. And so, um, you know, it doesn't feel good. I've, I've, I believe in my career, I've had a five shot lead and not one. And I did not feel good after that. <laughs> and, and so I remember, you know, you're, that's another thing about the way the brain works. It, it, it builds these little shrines to failure because it, the subconscious's main job in your life is to walk you around and keep you safe. And um, it puts these little red flags every time you have a little nick to your safety. If you feel a threat, your body doesn't know the difference. Your mind doesn't know the difference between 
like being a gun aimed at you and uh, a three putt on the last hole when it costs you a tournament. It's an assault on the way you feel. And that is something that you have to uh, constantly be aware of. And so those little experiences, those red flags, those shrines to failure exist, and it's hard to ignore those. And, and so um, one of those would certainly be, you know, oh, he's leading by five shots and he shot 79 and, and lost the tournament. And, you know, that doesn't feel good at all. So I knew that was out there. And um, I try to be vocal to Lisa and to my son, who's also now my caddy, Reagan, and let them know when I feel a certain way, like if I feel a little bit of fear on the golf course, I'll try to voice that because just getting it out just helps and makes it feel a little bit less, uh, less big. And so, um, I was talking to, openly to Lisa about like, wow, I'm really nervous, you know, really nervous. And I know I'm playing great, but man, anything can happen. And I'm, you know, I need to discuss what I'm going to do if I'm out there, if I'm three over through two holes, or if I hit my first tee shot out of bounds, how am I going to handle those things and try to be ready? And what if I get, what if I increase the lead to eight, then how am I going to do things? And I don't mean like, am I going to start playing with irons off the tee or start being more conservative? The game plan is the game plan. And you're trying to make the best score on the hole, no matter what. I mean, how am I going to handle myself? And it's the between the ears part that really is, that's, that's the part that is the hardest to master and no one will ever really master it, but you, as close as you can come, you can be very, very successful in golf. Well, in the under an underrated part, I guess, of of pro golf or golf at all levels or, or tournament golf in general is how much time you have to spend just thinking, right? I mean, so little of your time is actually spent in the process of a shot. And, you know, especially you coming in, you're sleeping on the lead, come in the next day. I, I don't know how you go out and, and play golf the, the same free way you have in the previous three days. I, I feel like that's something that only can really truly come from experience. Is that fair? It is. You're right. And, but it's also where that mountaintop of trust comes in, you know, yep. that you've prepared, where, where are you going to go to get your, your grit that day? Is it going to be that you hope you get some good bounces or is it going to be that like, remember all those track man combines I did and all those times in the gym and how like much better shape I'm in now that I was in 19. And it, it, there's so many reservoirs you can go to if you choose to but you have to keep those reservoirs full. And if you don't, you know, an empty gas tank is not going to get you very far. So the mountaintop of trust comes into play at that moment and, and you have to go and find and, But again, all this stuff is decided ahead of time. Well, I don't know how well he actually channels this, but Patrick Cantley talked about, um, you know, when he shows up on Thursday of a tournament, he almost feels freed because he believes that his fate is almost decided based on how much work he's put into that point. And I, I'm, I'm sure under the gun, he doesn't necessarily feel as freed up as he does hitting that first shot or whatever of the week. But uh, that 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 kind of approach is is that I don't know. Does that sound similar to you? Does that sound like a crazy approach? What what does that sound like to you? It part of it sounds similar. Uh, none of it sounds crazy, but part of it sounds um, maybe uh, it's just not the way that I think or approach golf. I, I think golf is a percentage game in the macro. And that's what we're doing. We're every time I'm on a tournament round and I have a 10 foot putt, I'm, I'm trying to make, I'm not just trying to make that putt. I'm trying to do the best process I can do so that that one in the next 10,000, I'm going to make a, about three or four more than the next guy. That's what, that, that's what I'm trying to do. It's about the macro to me. And I, if you try to, if you try to make those, if you try to force those balls into the fairway from the tee, you just are going to end up frustrated because you can't control those results. That that's just, I, I firmly believe that that falls into the basket of things you cannot control. Patrick, I know him. He's a very hard worker and he's an exceptional player. He's so good. He's mentally strong and I know how hard he works and it, that may be his main reservoir. And if it is then good for him because he's doing a great job with it. For me, how hard I work is not my main reservoir, but faith and knowing that this shot is one of the 10,000 in the macro world of the game I'm playing, that's the reservoir I go to. You're speaking to my soul there because I'm, I'm a big stats guy. So that, that, uh, that actually really does make a ton of sense. But does it have any effect on you when you get to the golf course that day? And you can tell us what a, a fan yells at you as you go in. I think when you're walking into the locker room, a taunt you receive nursing that five-shot lead. Does that have any effect on you in any way? 
uh, I forgot about that. But there was one guy you're probably referring to that um, it was when I was walking in on Sunday, you know, an hour and a half, two hours before my tea time, walking in the locker room and there's a handful of fans. This was still back when there weren't that many fans at the course. And a guy just yells, don't choke. And I'm like, thanks a lot, you know, for telling me that, you know, I, I, it's not like I haven't thought about that for the last 12 straight hours, but thanks for the reminder. <laughs> I almost think that could almost help though, you know, of like, ah, all right, well now let's not try to steer away or avoid this topic at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it was actually kind of funny. I didn't stop and reply to that guy and we didn't have lunch the next day either, but um, it gave me a little chuckle and I was able to walk onto the putting green and walk straight to Reagan and he was setting up my little putting apparatus that I always do before every round. And I said, you're not going to believe what one guy just said. <laughs> he just yelled, don't choke. <laughs> and we got to have a good laugh, which turned out to be, you know, the start of kind of blowing off some steam. And um, it was just a funny moment. Yeah. Well, I couldn't help but kind of be amazed at someone that's made, you know, 600 plus career starts, just how much in that, in those, you know, coming under the gun there on the, on the final nine and that whole week, really, how much you're relying on your son, Reagan, your caddy at, at key moments in that golf tournament, checking win, clubbing decisions, et cetera. Is that, I mean, I guess kind of explain that to me, you know, I know your son is a, an accomplished golfer himself, but it just was, with so much experience that you had, I just found that kind of relationship and back and forth to be, uh, at least that part of it to be very interesting. It was, um, it was so much fun and, um, it, it's fun when we're winning. It's also fun because we do the same things when we're not winning and when I'm missing the cut, you know, it's just, that's our process. And Reagan has grown up around golf and playing golf, although he played other sports, um, along with Connor, my other son, my older son, they both played ice hockey and, um, Reagan played a lot more golf than Connor did, but they both played high school golf and a few golf tournaments here and there. Reagan though, just picked up the real passion for golf. He loves golf courses. He loves the golf decision-making, the nuances of like how a ball sitting in the first cut of rough versus fairway, you know, different, the nuances of like golf IQ. Reagan is just excellent at that. And, and it's because he cares about that stuff. Connor is more of a six pack and play the music real loud and, you know, take five foot gimmies. And he loves golf too, but he loves it in a different way than we do. So it's fun to go play with both of them because you see a great contrasting style of golfers. <laughs> Reagan, Joe, um, he, he's a good golfer, he, but his, his golf IQ is tour player. And so I trust him just to the end of the earth with decision-making and input. I mean, I'm still dis the, the main decision-maker, but I trust like when Reagan walks yardages off or when he uh, gets uh, a number to a certain part of the green that's not necessarily the front or the back or the hole – or the wind direction, he's just got it. He's like one of us out there caddying. He could caddy for anybody in the world today. He's just doing a fabulous job. Well, I'm sure you get this question a lot too, but how does, how does the pay arrangement work? Are there any, any, any family <laughs> like tax breaks you could take advantage of? Does it all go to his inheritance? To, you know, how does that relationship work? That part works like he's a caddy. <laughs> he's a professional <laughs> caddy. <laughs> yeah, he, no, he's um, the only thing that, I mean, this is, I, he probably would not mind me talking about this, but that he's uh, is basically traveling with us all the time. So we handle all the travel, all the hotels. We stay in, you know, Airbnbs and stuff because Lisa, my wife, travels and Reagan. So we have three of us out there most of the time. So we don't stay in hotels as often. So um, we're covering all the travel expenses and all the food, everything. Reagan's he's on our he's on our ticket. He doesn't get the full weekly pay that a caddy would get because of that. We adjust down for that. But he does get the full percentage. But I feel like he totally earns it. You know, and we, we've had two wins this year. He's gotten the full percentage for both of those. I didn't hesitate one bit to pay him the full bit. He's, he's contributing to me playing well because there's zero conflict out there. We both believe 100% in the way we're approaching the shots and what we're doing. He's making me a better player. I'm enjoying myself more. It's my favorite year I've had on the tour. And, you know, a lot of that's due to him. That's awesome. That's that's. That's truly a unique situation. You know, that's, uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with any situations that have looked quite like that in golf. But on a very different note, uh, I'd say, you know, your closest call in a major prior to 2009 was in 2001 at Southern Hills. And for our audience, it might be a bit younger that maybe doesn't remember that situation and scenario. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could take us there and talk, talk a bit about how, uh, what it was like reacting to that, uh, to that close call. Yeah, the, and at the end of this, I'll tell you the other most uh, memorable fan call out that I got. Uh, uh -oh. 
until the don't choke. And uh, <laughs> so rem- if I don't get to it, remind me at the end. So um, 2001, we're in the U.S. Open in uh, Southern Hills, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I had been on tour now for 97, 98, 9, 10, the four years. I had two wins. And, you know, I was kind of an up-and-comer still. I was probably ranked in the top 30 in the world. And and so uh, played real well. And and coming down the stretch, it was uh, basically uh, me and Ratif were in the last group, Ratif Goosen. And it was going to be one of us to win. And um, we both hit the fairway in 18. I missed the green into the left rough. Retief hit it all over the flag, kind of a blind shot. You can't really see where the ball ends up. He had a great shot. And um, we get up there, and, and I'm in the rough, got about 25-yard chip, and he's about 11 feet straight behind the hole. And on that course, on that pinball location, straight behind the hole is a straight uphill putt. I mean, it was a no-brainer, straight uphill 11-footer. So I chipped onto the green, left it a little short, kind of muffed it out of the rough, left it about uh, just outside of his ball. You know, I put it first and I needed to make the par to uh, at least make him make his birdie. And, and I missed the putt. And so I, the tournament was over and um, I went to go ahead and finish. And I had about two feet, maybe less. I mean, it was short and I was a wreck. I mean, once that putt didn't go in, I was just, I couldn't focus on anything other than just like, get out of here without embarrassing yourself. And the one thing I did was I embarrassed myself. I missed it. I missed the tap in. It was ugly. And I made double and cleared the stage for Retief to go ahead and, and win the tournament. And then Retief goes and blows his 11 footer about two and a half feet past and missed that one and made bogey. And so uh, I'm standing there now going like, wait a minute, I just lost by one because I missed that little putt. <laughs> and now, I mean, I... I maintain to this day, if you don't miss your putt, Retief does not three putt. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I mean, it'd be different if I marked and Retief three putted and then I missed mine. Yes. But, you know, the way it worked out is I lost by one and that putt suddenly meant a whole lot. That putt that I wasn't very focused on and it's not like I rushed it or anything, putted on one foot. You know, I... I was trying to gather myself and I just couldn't do it. And so I, I missed a little putt, retief three putts. It goes into a playoff the next day. I miss the playoff by a shot. And, you know, at that point, that's pretty gut wrenching. And the next, uh, the, the next year was the roughest year for me, probably, uh, golf wise where, um, at the time I felt a lot of confidence from, the way I played and I almost won the U S open and I had a real high finish the next week at Westchester, like fifth place, I think. But over time that, uh, that missed putt and that the attention that was on it and it, it did take a toll on me and it did, you know, we had, that was in 2001. We had nine 11, just a few months after that I had made the Ryder cup team kind of limped in, didn't play great in that summer and um, made the Ryder cup team. And then we got the delay and I was in this funk of, you know, not really enjoying playing and, I had the putting felt like kind of yips. And then, um, so the, uh, the comment, <laughs> go back to the comment. So, uh, the, the very next week, Westchester par five finishing hole. And I'm, uh, I think I hit up there to the green and two. And I had about, I had a pretty long putt. I was maybe like two group, two groups from the finishing group. And I was in contingent, but I wasn't going to win. I was probably in fifth. And I, putted my first putt down the hill and it rolled about two feet past the hole and it was pretty much a no-brainer tap in and um while I was walking down there and I was going to finish up a guy in the crowd you know gotta love the New York crowd (laughs) one guy just yelled out really loud really loud sink don't putt out and I'm like okay I'll mark Because I just couldn't. I mean, it was seven days after that U.S. Open Sunday, and I just missed a short putt. And I was like, that guy just made it impossible for me to finish this hole. I cannot finish. I am going to mark and wait for you to putt, and you just may have to wait for me a little while until I get myself together. But from that point on, I recognized, like, you know what? This is a public deal, and I've got some work to do. And um, and then uh, a writer, I can't remember who it was, but a writer, they were doing the Ryder Cup preview for my first Ryder Cup. You know, I'm going into, you know, I'm feeling like I'm in this sort of the, the, uh, the fishbowl of golf, not playing great. And I'm on the Ryder Cup team for the first time. And this writer was kind of given a little synopsis of every player under, let's say, uh, Paul Azinger, tons of grit, hits a lot of fairways, don't want to play him in singles. You know, 
guys like that. That's the kind of description he put. Undermine, he put two words he won't hear. That's good. That was pretty brutal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, really? Is that really good? What's going to be like at the Ryder Cup? They're going to be like all over me. They're going to be uh, like, it's kind of like uh, the, the Hawks fans counting um, one to 10 for Giannis on the free throw. <laughs> Is that what it's going to be like for me? And so, um, but of course, you know, you make these huge things up in your mind and you get there and nobody even remembers. And I played pretty decent in the Ryder Cup that year, and but we still lost. Well, one of the things I, uh, I, I guess I maybe unfairly love to, I look back at the picture. We have a picture of it in, in, our, in our office uh, of the 2006 Ryder Cup team and how random that team is. It's names that you would just have not, you didn't hear a lot from, a lot of, uh, you know, in the coming years on that on that team, like the Brett Wetterick's, and what do, you, what do you remember about that event? What Did you guys know when you were going over there that you're like, ah, yeah, we might be kind of up against it a little bit this week? <laughs> I don't think we did. I mean, you got to remember that when you're out there playing, like I'm out there playing, Brett Wedrick's like a guy I see all the time. And I'm like, wow, Brett Wedrick's playing awesome. That guy can move it. What a, you know, he's just having a great year. Vaughn Taylor, JJ Henry, those guys, they were kind of similar in that team. And, and I'm friends with those guys. And I'm like constantly amazed at how good they play. But there's only room for a few at the very top. And, and um, it's just, uh, it's so competitive. So um, with that being said, you have to remember that we had lost a couple of Ryder Cups in a row. And it was kind of starting to become like, a, all right, what are we going to do about the Ryder Cup? And the answer that year was we're changing the whole qualifying system. And that was the year that they, uh, they added just this like enormous amount of points for winning tournaments. And they also included the opposite events. So if you won, uh, one of the opposite events during the year of the Ryder cup, you were pretty much guaranteed to make the team and, uh, you know, call it what you will. Hey, not every system's got perfect you know build build up of its uh components or whatever but so yeah we ended up with some random uh a little bit more random team members that year and um we didn't win <laughs> we got smoked pretty bad but we had a great time doing it and by the way sunday after we lost best team party of my entire Ryder cup career just oh, unbelievable about that. how much fun it was both team oh the european team abandoned their team room like in half an hour after it was over it came to ours it was just a full on, just such a fun party. People up on the um, pool table, standing up, karaoke. Oh, it was just awesome. I can't wait. I'm, I'm excited for another Ryder Cup in Ireland. That, that seems like <laughs> a, a, a great place for international competition with awesome, awesome fans. But yeah, I, I mean, things, things would change the next year. I mean, I guess that, that probably contributes to things changing the next year for the Ryder Cup with a very different uh, qualifying system and, and, you know, makeup of that team. And it, it just, it's, you've had a lot of, you've played in five Ryder cups. I'm sure you've kind of been through the spectrum and seeing how, you know, how these teams have come together and, you know, what, what constitutes a great winning team and what maybe is a less successful team. What was it a really big different vi difference vibe wise going into 2008? Well, yeah, I mean, it really was. And, and I'm not an expert on what it's, of the, the energy of a winning team versus a losing team because I only won one out of five. So um, I've experienced four losses and one win. And the one win was by far the outlier um, with the pod system that Zinger put in. And the biggest thing was not just the pod system itself, but it was just having a system. And he, he gave it to us well in advance. So we all got a chance to uh, sink our teeth into it and really learn to buy in Everybody on the team was a part of it and was like fully invested in it. And I think sometimes like having a system is important as the system itself. And so you got captains that range anywhere from like Hal Sutton and Curtis Strange were both more like the y'all go kick their ass kind of mentality. And then you've got Lehman and Corey Pavin who are more of like the, um, hey, you know, it's going to be an awesome experience, guys, no matter what. And then you've got zinger who's like the mad scientist kind of like cooking up this pod thing and here's what we're going to do and i'll tell you what you know you can kind of hear it in his voice when he's doing television now i love zinger he was my big brother on the pga tour my first year <laughs> my big brother they had a big brother program and zinger was my big brother and i don't think he spoke to me until august 1st and i just won the previous week <laughs> really? i don't think yeah. i know about the big brother what's the big brother oh man program? is they, that new I, or is that old? Uh, um it, it's so long gone i don't think it lasted i think probably because of people like zinger who didn't speak to their young little brother <laughs> first eight months 
<laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing I had, I, this is, I don't know if this is the go-to when people ask about 2010 Ryder Cup, but the rain suits. That's the, that's the thing I remember the 2010 <laughs> Ryder Cup the most for. What, what do you remember about the rain suits? Well, I can tell you this. The tensions were growing between the players and the PGA of America. It had just come to a head where there was a lot of things that we thought were being done incorrectly and that uh, priorities were being placed on things that didn't really matter to the competition as much. And uh, it seemed just like things weren't really healthy in the relationship between the two groups. And it was going to either be rain suits or gloves or shoes or food or caddies or something. It was going to blow up and it happened to be rain suits. It, I'm telling you, it was going to blow up no matter what. And it was go- It just happened to be rain suits because we all, <laughs> we put on our rain suits and went out there in the practice days and it rained and we all got soaked through. <laughs> and, uh, so some of the players and caddies decided that they would go and buy rain suits from the merchandise tent. And that was really more of a show of sort of like uh, stick it right up your, you know what to the PGA. Was it the, stitching? <laughs> was it the stitching on them that made them not waterproof or were they just not waterproof to begin with? I have no idea. I think it was probably the stitching. I'm sure. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember the brand, but um, it was a totally a reputable brand that makes excellent quality rainwear. I, don't I, I hesitate to even say the name because I don't want to be wrong, but I'm sure that when when you put a bunch of USA in your last name and who knows other things that are stitched onto that thing, every time you stitch, you're going right through that water resistant, water repellent uh, coating, and water knows. You know, I mean, who hasn't had a leak in their ceiling? Water knows how to get in. It's going to get in there. Gosh, it's so it's. I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time, but it sure is funny to look back on that uh, a decade yeah. later. But um, all right, so, so I got some random stuff that uh, I haven't gotten to in, in some fashion, and then we'll let you get out of here. But um, two thousand after two thousand nine Open Championship, Claret Jug, spend a year with it. Tell us about how you uh, the way you almost returned the Claret Jug to that uh, when you brought it back over. Oh yeah, um, great night. We had um, a lake house up in South Carolina for a long time, which we just sold. And, um, so my buddy, Chad Parker, who runs Eastlake, he's my best friend in town here in, um, Atlanta. And he and I grew up in the same town in Alabama. So I've known him since I was literally like six years old. So we were celebrating the last night of all of our togetherness, um, before I left to go back to the British that year and return the jug. And Chad and I both were into barbecue a lot. And, um, we have a professional cooking team where we compete in barbecue occasionally and, Chad is one of my cookmates and we got my coach, Mike Lipnick is the other member of our team. And, um, so we're, we're seriously into barbecue. And that night we had, uh, kind of done a little barbecue feast for the gathering up there. We had probably about 20 people. We had some, uh, like a drizzle that you would put over pork and we affectionately called it sop mop. It was like a barbecue sauce, but also kind of a marinade, kind of a combination, but very tasty. And, uh, we, we, put it in the claret jug and we drizzled it over the pork at the table, kind of like a showpiece, right? With the claret jug. And that was kind of the photo moment. And, and then there was some, you know, Guinness and some other uh, adult beverages that were present. And so at the end of the night during the cleanup, I thought Chad had cleaned it out and he thought I had cleaned it out, the, the claret jug. And so um, claret jug goes back in its case. And it, it, when I had the jug in my possession, it's not like I got it out all the time. It, it stayed in its case for, you know, a week or two at a time without being touched. So it went back in its case and we had about, uh, well, that was on, that was the end of the 4th of July weekend. And we were leaving for the British probably on like July the 8th. So we had three or four days. So I show up at the airport here in Atlanta and we're going through security. And I know a lot of security people, uh, in there. And so when they see me come and they're like, uh-huh, you know, we're gonna have to check that. We know you, cause they knew it was clear jug and they're like, uh-huh, we got to check it. So I was laughing with them and they pulled it out and started looking at it. And the other officers came over and everybody was kind of crowding around. Yeah, look at the jug. And then meantime, I see the sop mop start to drip out. <laughs> the sop mop is dripping out of the claret jug right there in the airport, right there in security line. And the line is kind of backed up. And I'm like, guys, um, I think we've got people waiting and it's dripping right on the little felt in the case. And I'm, I, I'm seeing a disaster starting. So they, they put it back and they close it up and I went straight into the bathroom. And so I'm in like the, the T gates in Atlanta, right there at the bathroom at the end of security. And I'm washing out the claret jug in the bathroom, in the sink and pouring out the sop mop 
I'm on sure the way people back. in the bathroom are like, ah, oh, Stuart, we get it. You won the British Open, man. Like, we get <laughs> yeah, it. You don't, exactly. need to wa- you don't need to clean it in the airport. but <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, clean it out one last time, guys. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, I didn't have anything really to dry it with. So I kind of put it back in the case wet. And I was worried when I got there, overnight flight and all that, that it was going to be like really gross, really moldy and everything. But when I got there, we'd, we went over um, a little bit early to go to Dublin and play golf around Ireland for uh, just a couple of days before we went over to the open. It was at St. Andrews that year. And and so um, when we got to the, to Ireland, to the hotel, I, I got out of the case and it was wet and gross, but it wasn't moldy or anything. So I, I stood it up in the corner and let it air dry for the rest of the day while we were out playing golf. But that, yeah, that was, that was kind of the last little fling I had with it. The sop mop. Where'd you play in, uh, in Ireland on that trip? On that trip, we played Port Marnock. We played Baltray. We played European Club. Might have played Port Monarch twice. Can't remember now, but I, I love playing Ireland. I love all the Lynx courses, but Ireland, it just seems like they really like Americans and they welcome us so friendly and so welcoming. And so uh, I just thoroughly enjoy being in Ireland. Yeah. I mean, that it, it, just a year or t- a couple of years of not being able to go there, really, it's like I'm ready to scratch that itch going over and, and playing some, yeah. some more Lynx golf. What, uh, what 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 was the first time uh, like playing with uh, with Tiger Woods and on the back half of that? What's it like going up against him in match play? <laughs> well, the first time I played golf with Tiger Woods, uh, it was a junior golf tournament. I was seventeen, and after the first round, my mom had taken me to this tournament in Dallas, Texas. My mom says to me, "Go practice, or go to the pool, or go do something. I'm going to go watch Tiger Woods," and I'm like what? I've never heard of Tiger Woods. What are you talking about? She goes, it's a golfer. He's from California and he's pretty good. I'm going to go watch him. So my mom went and watched <laughs> Tiger Woods play golf. And, uh, that was the first round of the tournament. And on the final round of the tournament, the, I was in the last group with Tiger Woods and also Nota Begay. The three of us were the final pairing and Tiger Woods won the tournament by, uh, well, it wasn't very close. <laughs> he, he won. He was the, me and Nota were like the oldest kids and we were the favorites and Tiger was the young upstart and he beat us and I played with him then. And then, uh, because of my age, I went to college and I didn't play with him again until I was a senior in college. And the next time I played with him, he was a freshman and I played with him in South Carolina and the shot that he hit off the first tee, he had gone from boy to man and the shot he hit off the first tee. I'll never forget the sound of it, how loud it was and how far it went. And I was just astonished that somebody could hit a golf ball that far. It was just unbelievable. And that's what I watched for, you know, 20 something, 25 years. Well, and then 2008, you make it all the way to the finals of the match play only to see that guy across the, uh, across the tee box at you. How, how did that go? Well, I think if you go back and Google that, the answer will be there. I think it was like a 10 and 8 loss for me. <laughs> Something like it's that. It's 8 and 7. Don't, don't, eight and seven. You didn't okay. quite eight get aimed. But I mean, that, I was actually randomly just looking at that stretch of golf that he played from 2006 to 2009 today. And it's, do not do not feel bad about losing that match that badly because there's almost nothing uh nothing like that but no it was a that that was uh i mean i i think we played well you just said eight and seven so we played about uh what's that 11 holes 11 holes uh 29 holes yeah 18 and oh, then oh it's 36 hole final that's right 36 yeah. hole final yeah and okay, so that uh, makes it better and so i i played you know three or four under golf for that and i got Jeez. beat eight and seven. Oh my god and I didn't play. I, I I threw away a couple of shots, but I played some good golf too. And I, I, there was a funny story from that. I had an eagle putt when T- Tiger was dormy, and um, I had about a thirty-five footer. And Tiger had chipped up to give me and made a birdie. And if I didn't make this eagle putt, the match was over. And I was putting. The pin was on the left side of the green, and all the spectators were to the left. And I was putting towards them. And in in my through line, like as I looked past the hole and through the gallery, I saw the tour staff wheeling the trophy on a cart and it, it was right behind the hole. And I, I was crouching down looking at the putt and I was kind of like, oh, what are we still doing here? You know, I mean, can we just get this over with? And I looked and I saw the cart and it like renewed this focus in me. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have something to fight for now. I want to at least make a move the cart one more hole. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was kind of laughing and also kind of fired up and I made the putt and it was like one of the most exhilarating moments because I just wanted them to have to move that cart one more time. 
I just felt so disrespected by like they're wheeling the cart out there and it's right in my through line. And so, uh, (laughs) then on the next hole, Tiger made birdie and it was over. (laughs) Put you out of your misery. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, very last question. We we ask this every time I remember to actually ask it, but, uh, usually makes people think a little bit. When was the last time you paid for golf? My own? Yes. Okay. That changes things. Because I did pay for my kids to go. We, we went to Pebble Beach last year and played at Pebble and Cypress and Spyglass. And so I paid a lot for that. Hmm. Um, when did I pay for myself? I mean, I have joined a few clubs, but you don't, you're not talking That's, about that. that you're talking, about, quite count, you're yeah. talking green fees. It might have been the old course. Hmm. They made might you pay the, the old course. course. Uh, yeah. Um, when I first played there, I was just a nobody. I mean, I just turned pro and I'd probably got on tour for a year, but I never played the old course and we had the open at Carnoustie and I missed the cut and I wanted to play at the old course. It was 98, no 99, the year of the, the year of the debacle at at Carnoustie. And, uh, I wanted to play at the old course. So I just joined on the ballot and waited around and got on. And I think I paid, but I don't think I've paid since then. That's pretty awesome. You did the you did the ballot there on the first tee. Yeah, I did the ballot That's and I got in right away. And you know what? I got paired with three American rules officials. Hmm. I wonder how <laughs> many open champions have done the ballot at the old course. That'd be, that'd be interesting <laughs> yeah. to see if there's there's any more of those. So maybe so. All right, we'll let you out on that. Thanks so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the stories and the perspective on your career, and especially the uh, the mental golf stuff. That was really interesting stuff. So thanks so much for your time. Greatly appreciate. It. We'll be uh, rooting for you the rest of the way. All right, you got it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect 